Okay, I want you to picture this scenario. Uh, you're on the Eastern Freeway, you're driving to a meeting, and it's in Brunswick. You've got 15 minutes to go. You're going down the Alexander Parade, and you get to the corner of Ligon Street, and you're trying to turn right into Ligon Street, and you've got the traffic lights there. And in front of you, there's this annoying hipster in his VW diesel with his hipster girlfriend who's wearing a grandma's cardigan. And he's sending a text and he misses the fact the lights are there and there's no cars on the intersection and he's not turning and he's making you even more late. How do you respond? You can respond in all kinds of ways. Here's a few ways that you might respond. Anger. You will not get to the meeting in time. It could be happiness. You have a laugh at the silly hipster's beard. And you think, isn't life amazing around here? Anxiety. You're worried that the other people at the meeting will think less of you for being late. Could be a relief. You didn't really want to go to the meeting anyway, so missing out in the first 15 minutes is a good thing. Depressed. You start listing in your mind all the things that the people at the meeting are going to say about you and about how you're always late to everything. Guilt. You wished you had been more organised if I'd only left 15 minutes earlier. If I hadn't have gone down the Eastern Freeway, but I've gone down Johnson Street instead, I would have got... Escapism. You turn on 774 and you listen to John Fain and him bagging out the treasurer and you think, oh, yeah, and then you drink that coffee that you got, which is why you're running late, actually. You question God's goodness. It seems like God is always targeting me. I'm always doing things wrong, I'm stuffing life up. Envy. You become envious of your friends who don't have to spend so much time in their car every morning. See, there's so many ways you can respond to any given situation. And we're often seeking to understand why we respond the way we do to things in life. Why do we fly off the handle sometimes? Why do we daydream sometimes? Why do we get envious of people? Or, let me turn the volume up to 10. Why do you lose control and scream at your children? Why, why do you have an affair with your colleague? Why do you cut corners at work and do things which are a bit unethical? If we have a rash, we go to the doctor and we say, I've got a rash. And the doctor says, ah, You've got an allergic uh, reaction to uh, so-and-so. Here's a cream. Uh, But what about our diagnosis for sin? When we find ourselves sinning, being caught in the snares of sin or the thorns of sin, to use language we're using today, how do you diagnose that? Well, we often give all kinds of reasons, don't we? Here are some reasons we often give. We say it's other people's fault. I will be a nicer person if you wouldn't treat me like that. Or we talk about our family of origin. Well, you know, I had a messed up family, so that explains the way I am. Or suffering. You say, I was deeply wounded by a past event and I live out of my pain. And that's how you justify your actions. Or your situation. You say, I've had a hard day. My finances, my relationships 
are, are just not in the way they should be. You've caught me at a, a low point in my life. It could be unmet needs that we list as our cause for sin. I wasn't being loved by the people around me and so I find it hard to love back. You can blame your body. I blew up because I didn't have enough sleep last night. You can blame your stomach. It was food rage. I I have food rage sometimes. Now most of these explanations can play a significant role in our character and our makeup as people. And you, I would never want to say, let's dismiss these things as insignificant. But we should never cause, call them the cause of our sin. Rather, the Bible says that they are the occasion of our sin. Because when we are tired, for example, this has created an opportunity for us to sin. But it hasn't caused us to sin. We've just become a bit sort of irrational and... Um, lazy, I guess, the more tired we are and not thinking straight. Our family background, other people, our personal, physical situation, broken relationships, what these things do is they bring what's in our heart to the surface, but they don't cause us to sin. And these things that I just listed then, they're kind of what I was talking about last week, the heat of normal life. They are life's hard trials. But while the heat of life creates a pressure cooker situation for us to kind of make it easier for us to sin, our heat, while this is very serious, is not the main problem. So let's turn to the passage from James and see what we learn about the nature of sin. And and what we're looking for, for those of you who are visiting today for the first time, is the question of how God changes us, because that's the that's a theme for this series. If you look at James chapter 4, verse 1, we'll see that sin comes from the heart. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you? So here James is referring to some kind of conflict, which is amongst the Christians, some unhappy and aggressive arguments going on perhaps in their church. His concern is with the selfish spirit, the bitterness in, the, in their arguments. He doesn't actually even say what the arguments are about. That's not important for this little discussion in James chapter 4. The word he uses for desires there, you'll see. So he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The word for desires is where we get the word hedonistic, the word hedone. And it actually translates as pleasure, a self-indulgent and sinful pleasure. Um, And there's careful language James is using here. He's talking about the fighting and the quarrelling. And this stems from the desires, the hedonistic pleasure, that battle within your members, within yourself. Um, He's using this kind of military language, isn't he? Battling language. Um, the, the battle within our hearts. The Apostle Paul also, Peter sorry, also uses this same kind of language about the internal war. Um, Peter says, uh, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. 
It seems like what James is saying in this first verse is that there's an outside thing we can all see, which is your arguments and quarrels, but it's all coming from what's going on the inside. Let's just flesh this out a bit more. Earlier we read the Ten Commandments out. And I don't know if you noticed, but the Ten Commandments are kind of divided into three and seven. And the first three commandments focus on what or who we worship. And I think it's what it's implying, or it's directly saying, in fact, is that as human beings we have an inclination to worship something else other than God. Um, We have an inclination towards worshipping idols. We substitute God for other things. So what seems to be the case is if you can't keep the first three commandments to put God as your number one, who you worship, then you will go on to break the other seven. It will just happen like a domino effect. Um, Breaking the Sabbath, not honouring your parents. Murder, adultery, theft, lies, envy. It just happens. Uh, The authors of Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp, who wrote the book... um, how God, what's it called? How God changes you. No, it doesn't, it's not called that. How do, how do people change? That's what it's called. <laughs> um, he said, they, say, they wrote this, your thorny, sinful responses to life grow out of a heart that has defected to worship something else. See, it's our hearts that drive us to sin. That is where the spiritual battle is fought. It's nothing else. But look at verse 2. And you see this idea that sin leads to more sin. James writes, You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. So amongst the Christians who James is writing to, there are pleasures or desires not being met in them. And so the people are lashing out at each other so that they can satisfy their desires. And he uses the word kill here. I don't think that they're actually killing each other. Because I think if they were killing each other, he'd spend more than one or two verses on that. The church is killing each other, surely. Uh, But what he's saying is, this is a warning about what's going on in their heart, and he's saying, if you keep going down this direction, this is what's going to happen. One Bible scholar, Douglas Moo, says, James provides us with a powerful analysis of human conflict verbal argument, private violence, or national conflict, the cause of them all can be traced back to the wrongful lust to want more than we have, to be envious of and covet what others have, whether it be their position or their possessions. We want what we can't have, we desire what other people have, and this leads to sin. The famous French philosopher, René Girard has at the centre of his philosophy the idea of mimetic, uh, how do you say it, mimetic desire. All desire is mimetic. So, you, you know, the idea of memes from the internet, uh, ideas that pass from person to person in social media, a meme goes viral. And so what he's saying here is that desire is mimetic. He's basically saying that all our desires are borrowed from other people. Uh, he says even conflict or- originates in mimetic desire, the desire to have what the other team's got. So if you think about it, it sounds all very philosophical, but I can reduce it very quickly. If you put two toddlers in a room with a box of toys and you walk away, shut the door, they will end up in fighting because, have you ever noticed, one toddler, there could be ten toys, 
And one toddler picks up this toy and starts playing with it. All of a sudden, the other toddler wants that toy. There are nine other toys, but they don't want the other nine. They want that one because you always desire what the other person has. And that leads to conflict. You pick up the edge of sketch. I want the edge of sketch. Why can't I have the edge of sketch? And they're doing this with each other. Now, if you expand that out to whole nations, that's kind of how war occurs. Um, Incidentally, uh, René Girard also says that at the heart of human culture is a way to resolve this conflict, which is the scapegoat mechanism and sacrifice. Sounds familiar. Anyway, you can explore that in your own time. So this is what James means when he says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. The war on the outside is as a result of the war on the inside. And then he says, basically, we don't even know how to pray properly. Look, he says, you do not have because you don't ask God. What is it that they do not have? James doesn't really say, but the context suggests maybe they don't have the leadership they want. He's talked a fair bit in this book about um, them wanting wisdom for leadership. Um, they want to lead. They want to have, uh, they want to have understanding. And they don't, basically don't have that. And James is saying, you haven't even asked God for it. But not only that, when they do pray, they don't know how to pray properly. They pray selfishly. Look at verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. We, we, we really don't know how to pray and lucky we have a God of grace. I heard this great story about the country singer Garth Brooks. Not that I'm into Garth Brooks. He's in the wrong style of country for me. Nevertheless, I don't want to let that spoil this good story. He was interviewed once by the famous British TV uh, interviewer, David Frost. You might have seen the film Frost Nixon. And um, he had this song, um, Garth Brooks had this song that he performed called Unanswered Prayer. And um, he performed it. And David, uh, David Frost said, so how did you uh, come to the title Unanswered Prayer? And he said... Well, I was walking along with my wife once and we bumped into one of my ex-girlfriends and then I thought, thank God you did not answer my prayers, <laughs> which were, God, can I marry this woman? Sometimes the best prayers are the ones God does not answer, he said. The problem is that, see, I just step back from that. We sometimes pray strange things and God, by his grace, does not grant that to us. And the problem is, we struggle with our prayers. Often it's mi- we have mixed motives, and James is even saying he has selfish motives. But when we do have wisdom, this leads to a peaceful life and peaceful community. In fact, look at verse 4. Sometimes it goes so bad that we worship something else, and we choose the wrong allegiance. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, strong language. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. They're actually committing spiritual adultery. They have gone off with another God. 
And this is why James is using this strong language. Our sins, you see, they aren't like thorns because they wrap around our heart and they get entangled with our idols and our God replacements. And these thorns, they reveal our brokenness and where our heart needs transformation. And what we need to do is this. As we grow as disciples, we need to separate our heat, the heat of the pressure cooker of life, the problems of normal life and our suffering. We need to separate that from what's going on in our heart. See, having a clear understanding of this distinction, the heat and the things that we blame for our sin versus what's going on in our heart, will actually help us to move forward. If you think about this, like if it was just about external circumstances, then you'd have a very human-centric solution to your sin. So if the problem is other people, then I would need to find a bunch of new friends. Uh, if the problem is my messed up family, then I can just distance myself and stop talking to my family. If my problem is suffering, then I should just seek out comfort of some kind or, or medication. If my problem is my life setting, then I can just change my setting. If my problem is my unmet needs, then I can just get those needs met. If my, problem, if my body is a problem, then I can just go to the gym or get more sleep or go on a diet, go to the doctor, whatever it is. Now, I'm not suggesting that any of these things that I've said are, are, are wrong to do, but they're not going to solve the problem of your heart and your sin. Long, not long term. Because they actually bypass the gospel. They can, you can be addressing these issues over here, but you need to be addressing the issues in here. You don't want to be trying to change as a Christian without Christ. The Bible says that our biggest problem is not psychological or physiological or sociological or even historical, but it's spiritual. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do? We need to partner with God. So the Bible is 100% clear that God has had a mission to save us and he sent Jesus to do that and that he wants to transform our hearts by the resurrection power of Jesus and the, and the active work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, He wants to do that. Jesus has died for us if we are Christians and have faith in him and given us his righteousness. Right? The Holy Spirit has set us apart to be God's own. So now what do we do? Given that that's all happened and given that we still know that the thorns are there, what do we do? We live as disciples in the heat of this world with all the suffering and all the normal life pressures. And like a gardener wanting to clean up their garden, we have to look at our thorns and see where our heart is needs transformation. We need to look inside, so to speak. James says in the next verse, if we were to keep on reading, if you've got a Bible, have a look at it, James chapter 4, verse 5, that God is actually jealous of us, of the, sorry, of the idols. He's jealous of the idols. And he's like, I don't want your heart going to other idols. Um, but he doesn't abandon us in his jealousy. He's actually the gracious God who, despite our idolatry, steps forward to us and actually works on our heart. And this should make us humble. And James chapter 4, verse 7 to 10, if you were to read on, 
I should have put it in the booklet. Never mind, I'll tell you and you can read it in your own Bible. Verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, while James is writing these instructions as imperatives, as what you should do, um, in actual fact, he's talking about the putting to death of sin. Uh, technical word is our mortification. There's already a heavy metal band with that name, so you can't take that one. The washing of our hands, he says. The purifying of our hearts. He says, you know, you've got to live out this stuff. You've got to act on it. Jesus died and rose once, but we die and rise every day. That's what we've got to do. We die to our sins and we rise in our sanctified Christ-likeness. And we often get the balance wrong as Christians because either we can walk down this wrong path of a legalistic kind of approach to sin where we say it's all up to us and I've just got to have lots of rules and if I just keep all the rules then I will grow and deal with the thorns in my heart but you kind of leave God out of the picture. The other way you can go, the other wrong path, is to say God is a God of grace and if I just sit back and live, his Holy Spirit will change me in a kind of a passive way. It sounds good but it's not right. James says, purify your hearts. He's talking to the people. Wash your hands. Uh, In J.I. Packer's book, God's Words, he writes, The Christian is committed to a lifelong fight against the world, the flesh and the devil. Mortification is his assault on the second, the second being the flesh. So mortification is our assault on the flesh. It is our active work to stop sinning. But we don't do this internal fight on it against sin on our own. The internal work against sin is empowered by God. You've got to keep coming back to this sort of circle. An action is required on our behalf, nevertheless. So to repent, God convicts us of our sin. He reveals to us the thorns in our hearts, the, 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 the wounds, the darkness. And we see it too because God's shined his light on us. And he transforms this darkness in our heart like a surgeon doing a triple bypass. But then we have to turn around. So repent, you know, means to walk one way and then you go, whoa, no, I'm going to walk back this way. Requires an action. So let's just give some examples. If it's anger, if God exposes the thorns of anger in, in, in your heart, when we feel like flying off the handle, we have to try and not fly off the handle. We don't just say, oh, I've always been an angry person. I'm from an angry family and I listen to angry music and I wear black all the time. So I'm just going to keep being angry, you know. An action is required. Lust. If God exposes a thorn of lust in our hearts, which he so often does, when we are tempted to look at pornography, don't just say, oh, well, I'm not having my sexual needs met and this is an easy solution, so I'm just going to do it again. Uh... An action is required. We need to pray. We need to repent. God's showing the light on our, on our thorns. He's saying, your heart doesn't need to be this way. I'm changing your heart. Come on, catch up. 
You need to set up boundaries, perhaps, for yourself. You need to do things like have a password on the Wi-Fi that you don't have at home, or you need to talk to a friend, you need to set up accountability structures, whatever it is for you. An action is required. Mortification. Do something about it. What about envy? If God exposes the thorns of envy in your heart, we find ourselves criticising our friends. That's how you know. If you, look the, you use the Rene Girard principle, as soon as you start attacking your friends and saying things like, look at how much money they spent on their car. Or, you know, oh, they're always going on about their kids all the time. You know, the philosopher Rene Girard and James, the apostle, would say, there's a desire going on in your heart for what the other person's got and you're turning that into an angry response. You're killing the other person, so to speak. Uh, so what do we do? God shines his light. He works by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. We've got to do an action. So why don't we try and say something positive? Our heart is going angry. Let's turn it around and say, isn't it great they've got a new car or they've got such beautiful kids, whatever it is. God is doing his part. We've got to do our part. Philippians 2.12 Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfil his good purpose. This is what James meant when he said wash your hands and purify your hearts. So what have I been saying this morning? I've been saying this. All ungodly behaviour grows out of a heart that has been captured by something else, something other than Jesus. And to grow as a disciple, what we need to do is to see that our real problem is not something else out there, but it's our heart. <clears throat> we must learn to recognise these things, to know how to spot them, these things that draw us away. And when God shows us these thorns of sin and idolatry that are wrapped around our hearts, we need to repent and take action knowing that God is already present with us, working by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're finding this hard to grasp, if you're not sure how to begin with the thorns in your heart, I want to give you ten questions that something might ring in your ears right now. What do you love? Is there something that you love more than God? What do you hope for? What, are your, what, what hope are you building your life around? What do you fear? Perhaps you fear rejection. What makes you tick? What thing really gets you out of bed in the morning? Who must you please? Whose opinion counts the most? How do you define success and failure in your life? What would bring you the greatest pleasure and the greatest misery? What do you think you have a right to? What do you believe you deserve to have in your life? What do you think about most often? And what do you talk about the most? What occupies your conversations with others? The point of these questions is to help us to think more clearly and deeply about our motivations. They can see how we might have turned some good things in our lives into idols. But when we discover the answer to these questions when some of the God starts to show the thorns in our hearts, we can also see how gracious he is. There's a great quote I read. The good news of the gospel shines brightest against the backdrop 
of our sin, so don't be afraid to look at these things. Pray as you think about questions like this. What drives me? Remember that you are, you are already with Christ and that God wants to change you. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that um, you can help us every day to get up in the morning, to confess our sins, to want to change, to be more Christ-like, to respond to your work in our hearts. Please help us not to um, just ignore it and encourage, help us to encourage each other in this walk. This is not something we do on our own, but we spur each other on. We lift all these things in your name. Amen.